Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. everyone. Happy New Year. I hope 2021 is off to a pleasant start and that if you were or are hungover still, um, you will sleep it off and become fully hydrated. I know it's been a challenging holiday season for a lot of people for the obvious reasons. For me personally, I felt really lucky to have had spent Christmas with my mom, brother, and my dog, Boo. And, you know, so many people, of course, had to stay in isolation as I had to during Thanksgiving. But in this case, we quarantined and ended up being together, which was amazing. And I'm really grateful for it. So and, you know, moving into this new year, I think a lot of people are hoping for healing. And that's certainly what I feel as well. But I'm very optimistic, to be honest. I think that there are a lot of good things that could come from all of the hardship we've endured. So that being said, during the holiday break, my brother Bill and I were talking about something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it made us think of the 2003 movie Party Monster starring Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green. So we decided to watch it. I believe it was the Wednesday before Christmas, and it's a very kooky, outrageous, but dark movie based on the club kids scene in New York, as well as Michael Alig's descent into drug abuse and the murder of um, Andre Angel Melendez. And you may say, Megan, why would you watch Party Monster during Christmas time? Well, if you know my brother and I, White Christmas or A Christmas Story, while great films, simply won't cut it. We both have a penchant for darker themes, which should come as no surprise given the podcast I've created here. So anyway, a few days after Christmas, I was looking up Michael Alig for some follow-up research and saw that he passed away from an accidental heroin overdose on Christmas Day 2020. And the macabre coincidence made me feel that I had to make this story the topic of episode 17. So as far as my sources are concerned, I relied heavily on the 2015 documentary Glory Days, The Life and Times of Michael Alig, Wikipedia, and an article in the New York Times by Quar Sicha, and that was called Michael Alig, Fixture of New York City Nightlife Dies at 54. And, you know, Party Monster is a great film. I highly recommend checking it out. It's based on a very true story. So, you know, as outrageous as it may be, uh, it's pretty close to the actual truth. So in a way, that's also kind of a source just to give the ambiance. But without further ado, let's get the story started. Michael Alig was an American club promoter and convicted felon. He was one of the ringleaders of the Club Kids, a group of young New York City clubgoers who became a cultural phenomenon in the late 1980s and early 1990s. In March 1996, Michael and his roommate Robert Riggs, who was nicknamed Freeze, killed fellow club kid Andre, nicknamed Angel, Melendez in a confrontation over a delinquent drug debt. In October 1997, Michael pled guilty to first-degree manslaughter. Both men were sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, with Riggs being released on parole in 2010 and Michael released in 2014. Now let's talk about New York City during the mid-1980s. It was a dirty, scary, but highly creative place. 
It was very gritty. The west side of Manhattan was essentially a cesspool, and the city never slept. There was a ton of crime and drugs. The art scene was centered in the East Village. And if you went beyond 8th Avenue, it was a war zone. There were sex workers everywhere. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. So it was a very dangerous place, but it was also a city of subcultures. Fashion and music were bursting through the sidewalks. Now, at this time, there weren't many nightclubs. There was, of course, Studio 54, which was the apex of the party scene, led by Andy Warhol and attended by wealthy socialites and celebrities. For everyone else, nightlife was very underground. When Andy Warhol died in 1987 due to complications from routine gallbladder surgery, there was a vacuum, a void, in New York nightlife. Enter Michael Alig. Let's discuss his upbringing. Michael Todd Alig was born on April 19, 1966, in South Bend, Indiana, which is a very conservative city, an hour and a half drive from Chicago. He was the second of two sons born to John, a computer programmer, and Elke Eilig, a native of Germany, who moved to the United States after marrying his father. The couple divorced when Michael was four years old. Michael attended Grissom Middle School and Penn High School, where he was a straight-A student and graduated in the top 8% of his class. During his teenage years, Michael reported that he was often bullied because of his homosexuality. In seeking a less conservative social environment after graduating, in 1984, he attended Fordham University in New York City. He studied architecture there before transferring to the Fashion Institute of Technology. There, he met the boyfriend of artist Keith Haring, who introduced Michael to the New York City nightlife. Michael soon dropped out of school and began working at Danceteria as a busboy. At this time, the club kid scene was bubbling up. While working at Danceteria, Michael studied the nightclub business and soon became a party promoter. His ability to stage memorable parties helped him rise in New York's party scene. During this time, he and other clubgoers began creating very flamboyant personas, which later became known as club kids. Now, the club kids were not originally called the club kids. Initially, they were called the fun touchables, which just no. Rudolf Piper, who was a co-designer and director of Palladium, the largest nightclub ever built, who was heavily featured in the Glory Days documentary, as well as Tunnel, the cradle of the club kids movement, referred to the group as those club kids, and that's how that name stuck. And Michael, he started as very fun and rebellious. Suddenly, he was everywhere on the scene, promoting parties and handing out flyers around Manhattan. He was really like the Pied Piper. You know, at first, he really wanted to be part of that celebutant culture in New York nightlife, but they wanted nothing to do with him, so he basically decided to create his own scene. He was intelligent, charismatic, charming, and he had, quote, children that would follow him anywhere. He also had access to money, drinks, and jobs. And much like Andy Warhol, he created his own superstars. He would gather and groom people, but you could never really get to know him closely. And here are some of the examples of the club kids. Ernie Glam, Gitsy, Jenny Talia, superstar DJ Kiyoki, Amanda Lepore, who's still very active in the New York nightlife and is pretty fabulous, Richie Rich, Robert Freeze Riggs, RuPaul, and Walt Paper. The club kids' outrageousness became a source of interest for the media, and articles about them appeared in such media outlets as Newsweek, People, and Time. And you may actually remember their interviews on shows like Geraldo and The Joan Rivers Show. I definitely recommend checking those interviews out. I think you could easily find them on YouTube, but they're pretty interesting. 
The club kids wore outrageous costumes that former club kid and celebutant James St. James later described as part drag, part clown, part infantilism. They were also known for their frequent use of ketamine, known as Special K, ecstasy, rohypnol, heroin, and cocaine. They were juvenile, anti-fashion, anti-poser, deliberately uncool, creative, and cartoonish. Glamorous in a dysfunctional way, you might say. And the further you push your expression, the more you are included in this group. They were also very narcissistic and amoral. And still, even with the costumes and the makeup and the outlandish behavior, you still got the sense they were outcast kids from middle America. Now, in 1988, Michael was hired by the owner of the Limelight, Peter Gation. Limelight became the foundation of the scene. It was a church that was converted into a nightclub space, and initially, it wasn't cool at all. In fact, it was nicknamed Slimelight. Now, Michael's parties at the Limelight were such a hit that he began organizing parties for Peter Gation's other clubs, such as Club USA, the Palladium, and Tunnel. Michael's notorious outlaw parties, which were thrown in various unconventional places, including a Burger King, a Dunkin' Donuts, abandoned houses, and a subway, helped to revitalize the downtown New York City club scene. And at first, Michael was very anti-drugs. He would pretend to be intoxicated as soon as he walked into a club, but he was actually clean. But drugs began escalating at Michael's signature Wednesday night party, Disco 2000. This became the apex of the scene, nicknamed Disneyland on crack. You had to be cool or attractive to be allowed in. You had to offer something to the room. There would be corridors filled with drug dealers, punch bowls with acid, ecstasy, and mushrooms. And Michael's parties also became notorious due in part to his own bad behavior. For example, he would throw $100 bills on crowded dance floors just to watch people scramble for them. In other cases, he would urinate on clubgoers or urinate in their drinks and would engage in stage falls wherein he knocked others to the ground. So, to be honest, grade A a-hole, in my opinion. In 1994, Rudolph Giuliani, referred to as a mini-fascist by former club kids, was elected New York City's mayor. In his first term, the New York City Police Department adopted a very aggressive enforcement-slash-deterrent strategy, which involved crackdowns on relatively minor offenses such as graffiti, turnstile jumping, possession of cannabis, and panhandling by squeegee men, on the theory that this would send a message that order would be maintained. And one of his major targets was nightlife, specifically the limelight. He wanted his task force to shut it down. Peter Gation essentially became the big fish. It was a true witch hunt that would send a message to other club owners. And as Michael's popularity in the club scene grew, so did his drug use. He was arrested several times for drug offenses and entered rehab, but continued to use drugs. There were no limits, no sense of right or wrong, and Michael would do anything to get attention. He became less good-natured and fun, and more erratic and sinister. He would have very macabre theme parties, such as blood feast and serial killing. He had drug dealers on the payroll that would distribute drugs throughout the clubs. The scene became evil, druggier, and darker. People started to die regularly, and morality was out the window. In 1995, Peter Gation sent Michael to rehab once again. Michael later claimed that after he completed his stint and was released, Peter Gation fired him. Some of Michael's behavior could be explained by a personality disorder. 
He reported being diagnosed with histrionic personality disorder, which is characterized by high levels of attention-seeking behavior, stating, quote, the doctor said I was the most extreme case he'd ever seen. Everything has to be completely over the top and exaggerated. It worked well for my job. I was a promoter. Now, one of the three drug dealers on the payroll at the limelight was named Andre Angel Melendez. To match his nickname, Angel wore large angel wings to the nightclubs. According to Glory Days, people that knew Angel had very mixed feelings about him. Some said he was very nice, others noticed a very dark, violent side and avoided him. What everyone seems to agree about, though, is that Angel couldn't penetrate the A crowd. He was a poser that lacked the creativity, looks, and expression to be at the top. Angel was always paranoid that people didn't like him or were laughing at him. And after the limelight was closed by federal agents and an investigation found that Peter Gation was allowing drugs to be sold there, Angel was fired. Shortly thereafter, he moved into Michael's Riverbank West apartment. On the night of March 17, 1996, Michael and his roommate Robert Freeze Riggs, on a several-day bender, killed Angel after an argument in Michael's apartment over many things, including a long-standing drug debt. Now, Michael claimed many times that he was so high on drugs that his memory of the events is unclear, but he later recalled in a prison interview that after Angel was becoming aggressive with his demands for money, Free said something to the effect of, This is why no one ever liked you. If you weren't a drug pusher, you wouldn't have any friends. This hit close to home and made Angel extremely angry. And according to Michael, Angel grabbed him and they flew into the china cabinet. Michael tried to push him off, then Freeze grabbed a hammer and clubbed Angel two or three times. Angel was not dead yet, so they finished him off with a pillow and an injection of Drano. This contradicts Michael's claims that they tried to revive him, obviously. What they did next was start using all of Angel's drugs, hoping they would overdose. When they didn't, they put Angel on ice in the bathtub and poured baking soda and Drano on him to mask the smell. They left him for about a week, and when they returned, Angel's body was decomposing and started to smell, so they decided they had to get rid of the body. Freeze went to Macy's to buy large kitchen knives, and they dismembered the body and put it into a large television box. They took it down the elevator and hailed a cab, and for some reason, they stopped at Tunnel Nightclub, then asked the cab driver to help them lift the box and throw it into the Hudson River. Of course, the cab driver asked why and what's in it. They said dishes, and somehow the cab driver didn't question it. But once the box was in the river, they were very alarmed to see it floating away. Freeze wanted to go in and jump after it. They had forgotten to puncture a hole in it to allow the box to sink. Now, on April 26, journalist Michael Musto reported rumors of Michael's involvement in Angel's death in a blind item in his Village Voice column. Although no names were used, Musto's report included the details of the murder. Musto had previously reported on Michael's firing from the limelight and noted the buzz about a missing club person. And the following day, the New York Post page 6 column ran a lead item about the murder mystery, citing Michael Musto's reporting as well as a New York Magazine piece quoting an invasive Michael Aleg. Over the coming weeks, the Village Voice continued to report and make accusations about Angel's murder. Through September, the police still had not questioned Michael about the murder. They were focused on his former boss, Peter Gation, wanting Michael to testify against him. Since several months had passed, many people believed that Michael would get away with murdering Angel, until children playing in the water pulled a box containing a legless torso from the waters of Oakwood Beach 
at Miller Field in New Dorp, Staten Island. James St. James recounted how Angel's brother was baffled by what he regarded as callous indifference by the police and by the scenesters Angel had considered friends. In November, the coroner reported that the body had been identified as Angel. Michael fled New York but was located by police in a motel room rented by his drug dealer boyfriend, Brian. Michael was arrested, as was Riggs, and shortly after his arrest, Riggs confessed to police. Michael claimed he killed Angel in self-defense and helped to dispose of the body in a panic. Prosecutors were hesitant to charge Michael with first-degree murder, as they still hoped he would testify against his former boss, Peter Gation, who had been arrested for allowing drugs to be sold in his nightclubs. Eventually, they offered both Michael and Robert Riggs a plea deal, a sentence of 10 to 20 years, if they accepted the lesser charge of manslaughter. They both pled guilty, and they were sentenced as such on October 1st, 1997. Now, again, thinking about the priorities of, you know, Mayor Giuliani, who is kind of a wackety-schmackety these days anyway, and the focus on Peter Gation as just kind of the scapegoat for the whole scene. I understand that the drugs were bad, but Michael Ailig is a murderer. Like, why, why is that the priority here? I mean, that just seems so twisted. In prison, Michael Ailig told Michael Musto, I know I, why I blabbed. I must have wanted someone to stop me. I was spinning out of control. It's like the old saying, what do I have to do to get attention around here? Kill somebody? Jesus. While incarcerated in the New York State prison system, Michael was transferred from prison to prison. He also spent time in the psychiatric ward at Rikers Island. Apparently, he was beaten and raped many times as well. In 2000, he was placed in solitary confinement after he was caught using heroin. He remained in solitary for another two and a half years after a drug test showed that he was still using drugs. In 2004, James St. James began a blog entitled Phone Calls from a Felon which contained transcripts of phone conversations between Michael and James St. James about his prison experience. After six weeks, Michael put a stop to the phone calls claiming, people think I'm having a grand old time or that I'm trying to exploit my situation, which he was, and he always has. Michael became eligible for parole in 2006. It was denied, though, reportedly after parole officers watched the film Party Monster, which I don't know if that's entirely fair, but honestly... If, if you'd see it too, you'd be like, no way is he coming out. He was again denied parole in 2008 after failing several drug tests. In 2009, Michael said he finally decided to stop using drugs and that he'd been sober since then. Years later, he was paroled in 2014. And per the conditions of his parole, Michael returned to New York City and was required to abide by an 8 p.m. curfew and undergo drug and anger management counseling as well as job readiness training. In the months following his release, Michael granted numerous interviews in which he expressed a desire to star in his own reality show and stage an exhibition of his artwork. Yeah, so very much rehabilitated, not. Reports emerged that Michael was attempting to sell his memoirs and was pursuing a career as a magazine writer. He also, along with club kid Ernie Glam, hosted a YouTube comedy talk show titled The P.U., He also released a pop song called What's In, featuring DJ Kiyoki, his former boyfriend. And a selection of his paintings went on display at the Select Fair in New York. But 
Not surprisingly, in 2017, he was arrested for trespassing and smoking crystal meth in Joyce Kilmer Park in Concourse, outside the Bronx Supreme Court, at approximately 1.30 a.m. He was detained because the park closes after dusk. The complaint alleged that police found a bag of crystal meth and a pipe with residue from the drug in his jacket pocket. The New York Daily News reported that he was arraigned on drug possession and trespass charges and pleaded guilty to trespass in exchange for a conditional discharge. Now, you may wonder what happened to Riggs. So after 12 years and five months, Riggs was given conditional release in 2010. One of the conditions of his release was that he could have no direct or indirect contact with Michael. He was released early from parole supervision in 2013. And apparently now, he has been accepted to the Ph.D. program in sociology at NYU with a five-year Henry McCracken Fellowship. So I guess more rehabilitated, but still kind of crazy to think about. So what happened to Michael? In early 2020, Michael or someone working on his behalf continued to list vast quantities of of ephemera from his past for sale on eBay, but uncharacteristically, he grew quieter and disappeared from the public eye for much of the rest of the year. And on Friday, December 25th, Christmas Day, 2020, in his apartment in Washington Heights at the age of 54, He was found by his ex-boyfriend, and it was due to an accidental heroin overdose. I actually lived in Washington Heights very briefly when I lived in New York. And in response to this news, James St. James tweeted, Logging off, I think I'll just be alone with my thoughts for the next couple of days. And in looking at comments on various articles and YouTube videos relating to Michael, it seems that at best, people wish him the peace and death he never had in life. And at worst, people are glad he's dead and view him as a stain on humanity. Michael's manner of death is no doubt very tragic. In fact, his whole life was too. Think about the agency this person had. He had talent, intelligence, and capabilities that could have been put to much better use. But there's no doubt Michael had a very dark side and was extremely narcissistic. In recounting the murder of Angel, he adopts an unconvincing sense of gravity for the crime, but the facade gives way to a faint humor you get the sense that he views it as another outrageous bit of performance art. That makes me angry, and I think it should make other people angry too. Angel may have been a wannabe and a criminal, but no one deserves to die, or certainly die in that manner. Also, Michael could have claimed self-defense after Freeze hit Angel with a hammer, but the two of them being so out of their minds and drugs felt that they needed to end his life and nefariously dispose of his body. And of course after, Michael joked about it. As with everything else, Michael just took it too far. Interestingly, many of Michael's cohorts believe he would never have done this had it not been for drugs. Whether or not that's true, it seems like he could never stay away from drugs, even in prison. So he posed a danger to himself as well as others for the rest of his life. And that is the rather insane story of Michael Alig, the club kids, and the very unnecessary murder of Andre Angel Melendez. Okay, and so for something beautiful this week, I've chosen Rodin Oleo Luso Jasmine and Neroli Luxury Face Oil. It is a carefully curated, cruelty-free blend of pure, nutrient-dense botanical oils. The blend is very rich in vitamins and antioxidants, including vitamin E, provitamin A, and omega-3, 6, 7, 9 essential fatty acids. I honestly didn't know there were so many omegas, my goodness. This oil will revitalize skin and impart a glowing, nourished complexion. 
It contains jasmine, neroli, jojoba, sweet almond, apricot, evening primrose, calendula flower, sunflower, argan, and rosehip oils. So all the oils. It won Allure's Best of Beauty in 2012 and into the Gloss's Top 25 in 2016. And to use it, first you just thoroughly cleanse your skin. You gently rub and warm the oils in your fingertips. Hold it in front of your face, breathe deeply, and then firmly press the oil into the skin, neck, and décolleté. Rodin oils also work beautifully as a primer to create a smooth canvas for foundation application. You apply before your moisturizer for intense nourishment. For a natural highlight, use the oil on the cheekbones, forehead, and bridge of the nose. I use this personally as I do all of the products that I recommend on the podcast, and it's especially helpful during the dry winter months. Another reason I chose this brand and this product is because the founder, Linda Rodin, is one of the most glamorous chic entrepreneurs out there. I think she's in her 70s, um, but I highly recommend checking her out on her Instagram, at Linda and Winks, Winks being her beloved poodle, but she's just absolutely fabulous. She has such a glamorousness about her that seems very effortless, um, and I, I just find her very inspiring as not only an entrepreneur, but just a, a an older woman. I mean, she's just rocking it and looks absolutely wonderful and seems to have a very independent but creative and lovely life. So check her out. You can purchase Rodin Oleo Luso online. Many department stores or select retailers. So give that a look-see, but very, very, very good product. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 17 of Crime and Beauty. To follow us, you can go to Crime and Beauty on Facebook, crimeandbeauty.podcast on Instagram. Um, You can listen on Podbean at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, Amazon Music. What am I missing? I always miss one. Pretty much all the things, let's be honest. But would love to hear your suggestions. If you have any feedback or suggestions, go ahead and shoot me an email at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay beautiful. Thank you.